0: make your way if you will to Exodus chapter 15 Exodus chapter 15 There's a pop song writer that once said life don't go clickety clack along a straight line track the rails come together and the rails come apart Indeed they do We know what that writer means, put in that colloquial way. And we know this as Christians as well. Trusting Jesus as your Savior exempts no one from trials. Even non-Christians know this, don't they? Otherwise they'd be lined up around the corner wanting to become followers of Jesus. Everyone knows that the Christian life is far from a trouble-free affair. But knowing this... Does not make it easy to accept. God has given us much knowledge in His Word. We know that God is over us. And I blend together three ideas which are overlapping, but we know that God is over us. That is, He is all powerful, sovereign, creator, and sustainer of the universe. We know, secondly, that God is with us, never leaving or forsaking us. And we know, thirdly, That God is for us. He did not spare His own Son. How will He not graciously meet our every need in Christ? And it seems logical then to expect that life will go clickety-clack down a straight-line track. But it does not. We routinely encounter bitter circumstances as the tracks of life come apart and sometimes fall apart. When we consider what we know, that God is over us, that God is with us, and that God is for us, we want to sing loud praises to His glory. But when life grows bitter, and the protective grace of God seems to be withdrawn, the true nature of our faith is exposed. And as we enter this new section of the book of Exodus today, at the end of chapter 15, this is the very juncture at which we find the nation of Israel. In chapter 15, verses 1 through 21, you remember that we find Israel there singing for joy in the glorious reality of God's saving grace. There is euphoric celebration there on the shores of the Red Sea. God has been so good, and we sing but then you notice at chapter 15 and verse 22, there should be a chapter division here. Taking us all the way through chapter 17, if you want to just skim through, from 1522 through the end of chapter 17, we find four episodes of bitter trial in the wilderness. And sadly, Israel's tune changes very quickly. We might liken it to two newlyweds Two very young newlyweds who think that they can live on love alone, and in fact for a good long while they do. They have no money, they have nothing at all in this world, but they love one another and they really don't care what happens in life. They can live on love. And then they run into that first real crisis, and the music stops. The honeymoon ends, and they face a new life, a new world, a new reality. And that is in a sense where Israel is here at this moment. She's on the shores, singing, rejoicing in the greatness of God. She can live on this deliverance for a long time, it would seem. But then reality strikes, bitterness sets in, and the trials begin to come, one after another here in the wilderness. We find the crisis comes at verse 22 and following, down through verse 27. Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. Moses decisively leads Israel away from the Red Sea, and in this wilderness that ranges upward toward Palestine and along the western coast of the Sinai Peninsula, he is the commander on the ground and he leads them Along, but I would assume that God's presence hovers over Israel and indicates the way that Moses should lead, looking back at chapter 13, 21, and 22. Remember, the presence of God in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire is leading them where they go on their journey. But this is inhospitable, semi-arid region. There's minimal vegetation here. Don't think in terms of all sand everywhere, but it's not too far off of that. It's not a fun place to be journeying. Not a particularly exciting location to which God leads His people. And Moses leading them, guides them into this place where they then go, we notice at the middle of verse 22, for three days in the wilderness and find no water. The honeymoon's over. Trouble has come. Let's put ourselves back in that situation. We've never probably had this experience. We don't understand it. But let's put ourselves back there. there's no running water anywhere. You've got to find a well. There's no bottled water. There's no coolers. There's no vending machines. There's no convenience stores along the way. You don't pull up to the Shell gas station, which you probably could in that region today. But there's nothing there. No grocer in the desert of Shur. The journeying Israelites have to find a well. They must, or they will die. And the sun is beating down upon them, and dehydration sets in. There are many pairs of squinting eyes that scan the desert horizon for any sign of water anywhere. And soon the people begin to grow desperate. This is a difficult situation. You've maybe been with some children somewhere that needed a drink, and you know that's a desperate situation in and of itself. There are many, many children in this gathering, but now the adults are becoming very concerned. Everybody's desperate. We need water, and we need it now. Then there, just ahead, someone spots the waters of Mara, and you can probably feel the spirit of the people lift Finally, we've come to a place of relief, and parched tongues begin to lick dry lips in anticipation of slaking their excruciating thirst. And that's when the trouble really starts. Verse 23 When they came to Mara, they could not drink the water of Mara because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Mara. Difficult to know if they name it that or it had already been named Mara, bitter, but they pull up and realize that this isn't going to work. The first Israelites who taste these waters pull back in disgust. The water is so bitter it is undrinkable. There's water, water everywhere and not a drop to drink. There are wells in this region even to this day that are known to be so bitter a camel might drink it if they're dying but a human being cannot drink it. We kind of understand that with ocean water, you're out lost at sea somewhere, you can't drink the water. It's all around, but there's such high salt content that it'll kill you to drink the water eventually. And that apparently is something of the situation here. There's no way they can drink it. This is an extremely disappointing development. And it's very alarming. We see the response to this crisis Coming from three directions, we see the response of the people, we see the response of Moses, and we see the response of God as we carry through in this narrative. We notice, first of all, in verse 24, as the people respond that they grumble. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? The crisis transformed the singing nation into a grumbling nation. It's a stunning transition. It didn't take very long at all. God was great when times are good and the nation sings, but now the trouble has set in, Israel begins to grumble. The authoritative theological word book of the Old Testament defines the Hebrew word here as meaning. That's translated grumbling here as meaning. And I quote, "...to express resentment, dissatisfaction, anger, and complaint by grumbling in half-muted tones." I guess the half-muted tones come from the fact there's really nobody to address. It's just a grumbling dissatisfaction, a complaint that doesn't go away. We can't drink this stuff. And Moses, we hold you accountable. This is certainly unfair to Moses, isn't it? This is not Moses' fault God has led here. And this is really, I think, ultimately a subtle complaint against God. There's no question that God has led them here. His presence precedes them in this pillar of cloud and fire. And there's no question that God controls nature. Israel has 11 very fresh examples of that fact. God's in charge. He's sovereign. He's all-powerful. He has led us to this place. But we grumble against Moses for bringing us here. To be blunt, they did not like where God had led them. And they did not appreciate how God was handling their circumstances. And so the bitter waters of Mara proved that they had bitterness in their hearts that could be tapped if the circumstances were just right. We've journeyed to these waters ourselves, haven't we? Maybe a time or two in our life we've been here, or maybe a thousand times we've been here. Coming to this place where we're just seeking to honor God. We're doing the best that we know. And then we face and experience a bitter disappointment, and we grumble. We complain. We may not lash out directly against God, but perhaps indirectly, you grumble against a spiritual leader. You grumble against your mate. You spew bitter dissatisfaction at a church or a ministry team. You complain and murmur and express dissatisfied resentment about the prevailing circumstances in your life. In half-muted tones, we just grumble and, as we say, bellyache. It's very natural to us, isn't it? I'd like to offer a proposition here. You can beat on it, test it. Let's talk about it afterwards. But I'd like to propose this grumbling, complaining, murmuring, whining is always irrational. It is always sinful. And it is always an attack on God. Always. It's irrational. Grumbling and complaining and dissatisfied resentment never solves anything. No one's ever accomplished anything with it. It's sinful. It is a violation of God's command to rejoice always and to give thanks in all things. It's just a direct disobedience against God. And some people say, well, it makes me feel better. You know, it really doesn't. What it makes you feel is guilty and you begin to turn your attitude and realize i got to quit doing this. It doesn't make anybody feel better. There's no sin that makes anyone feel better, unless we would say perhaps in the moment for a time. But with the spewing of bitterness, there is always the seeds of further bitterness that are sown in the heart, and it will come back to visit us. It is always irrational, it is always sinful, and it is always an attack on the providential workings of God. Victor Hamilton has said this so well. Murmuring, he says, is a frame of mind that assumes that God is insufficient. Man, there's a solid stomp on the toes right there, isn't there? Because we all grumble. We're all dissatisfied. We all resent. We all murmur. And when we do, we evidence a frame of mind that assumes that God is insufficient for the situation. May we pray. We need to ask ourselves, are we a grumbling church? We talk in every time that we come together to consider God's Word. We consider it as an assembly. We consider it as a body. It is bigger than just about us. Are we as a church a grumbling church? Is your home a grumbling home? I speak to husbands and fathers particularly. Do you tolerate an atmosphere of grumbling and complaining in your home? One thing I so appreciate about Pastor Pratt and our conversations and talk, there's times when we get into discussions about our family and our situation, and I always appreciate how he makes it so clear there's no whining in our home. He just doesn't put up with it. I appreciate that, and I appreciate that about others. But you know, there are some homes where that isn't the case. There's all kinds of grumbling and complaining and whining, and it's a free-for-all to just rip on whoever you want to rip on. Fathers, husbands, is that the atmosphere you permit in your home? Leaders of Eden Baptist Church, is that an atmosphere that we permit within our assembly? And of course, we then ask the greater question, is it one to which we contribute? Perhaps our home is a grumbling, complaining, belly-aching home because we are grumbling, complaining, belly-aching fathers and husbands. And everybody else is just following suit. Don't let it survive. Squash it. It needs to stop. Husbands and wives can grumble about one another. Children can grumble about parents. Church members can grumble about the church. Church leaders can grumble about the church. There's all kinds of reasons to complain and grump and bellyache and whine. We find them everywhere. And so we ask ultimately, is your heart a grumbling heart? It's irrational. It is sinful. And it is an attack on God. Let's own it for what it is. And let's all stand together on this truth that grumbling and complaining is sin. And we need to put it to death in our experience. The people of Israel grumble because there's nothing to drink. They complain and they whine. In stark contrast, we notice at verse 25 that Moses prays. And he cried to the Lord. That is Moses, the one that they're complaining against, cries to the Lord. He prays. This is, I guess we could say from the adult class, a lament psalm. Very quickly here, he cries out to God. Moses had been wronged. He had been unjustly criticized. His leadership questioned, his motives questioned, or at least his wisdom was impugned. Why bring us here? You've not planned very well here, Moses. And what does he do? He runs to the only true answer in times of bitter trial, and that is to the God who has led him to these bitter waters. And he says, God, help me. What do I do here? So while Israel grumbled about Moses, Moses talked to God about Israel, and God answers Moses' prayer. The middle of verse 25 continues, "...and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet." God provides in his response to Israel, first of all, by providing a solution in verse 25. Some would argue that God shows Moses a tree whose properties naturally counteracted the bitter properties of the water. That throwing in that tree, and by the way, the word log, you see the marginal note, might be better translated tree. That's the more generic translation. But some would argue that it was this tree that took away the natural properties of the water. It seems difficult to assume this in light of the large number of people that are being serviced here. I think we probably have what is a directly miraculous event as this tree is placed in the water and it becomes sweet for the people of Israel. But what I think is probably more important than just the phenomena here phenomenon here is the word showed. You notice that in verse 25. He cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. That word showed is a Hebrew word from which we get Torah, or the instruction of the Word of God. It's an interesting choice of words here. God instructed Moses about this tree and guided him with His Word. God did not deliver Israel from Egypt and then lead Israel into the wilderness in order to slay her with dehydration. He brought Israel to this place that Moses and Israel might see that God has the answer to the crisis. God led Israel into the desert for this specific and loving purpose. And we find it in that next phrase. He shows him this log, he throws it into the water, and the water becomes sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. He put them to the test. That is, He tested them to build up their faith. They were capable of trusting Him when He split the sea and opened to them a way of escape from the pursuing Egyptians. What about here? What about here in the desert where the crisis was less dramatic and God's deliverance less obvious? Here, God tested them and revealed to his people a principle they were never to forget. Here's the statute, verse 26 If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord your healer. God does not promise to exempt Israel from every trial, by no means. But as Israel suffers trials, her task is to do what? As you read that statute, that principle, what is the principle? You run into trouble, here's what you do hear my word and obey it. Follow my word, and I will be oriented to you in a way differently than I was oriented toward Egypt. The diseases here, we're not sure exactly what that's referring to. Perhaps Egypt was facing devastation in disease right at this moment. We don't know. Perhaps it refers back just to the boils or something of the like. But maybe there's a broader sense of disease here that's being used because we think of the Egyptians who could not drink the water of the Nile. Here are the Israelites facing the very same type of crisis and it is a sort of disease a sort of physical trial but God says I am oriented toward you as healer. God's orientation toward his people is one of benefit and blessing and healing grace not exemption from every trial. But God is a God who loves to bring healing and grace to His people, and that grace and that healing come as His people walk in obedience to Him. It's not some sort of crass plan that God and His people work up, or some sort of scheme, some sort of an equation, but God says this is how you are to orient your life. Not to worry and grumble and bellyache about the situation, but to seek my word as counsel and to follow my instruction through the trial. This is part of the testing. This is part of the faith-building process. And I'm letting you in on the teacher's notes here. I bring you into these tests in order to build your faith and in order to develop you. So when we face bitter circumstances, the key is to know that God has spoken and to heed His Word in obedience. And when we enter into bitter circumstances, we make a choice always between grumbling and obedience. Between belly aching and whining and knowing what God is saying and doing it. Obedience develops persevering faith when we're under the trial. And so God provides a physical solution. He provides a statute for Israel to follow. And then in verse 27, He provides rest. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. The palm tree is an evidence of a very large source of water below the surface of the earth. And the whole nation is able to encamp there and find relief from the scorching sun and to drink deeply of those waters at Elim. God leads them here. It is a place of abundant water and shade, of refreshment for a people that really do not deserve it, do they? God does not give in to Israel's complaint. That's not what's happening here. Okay, the people are putting the pressure on me here. I better follow through and find some water for them. That's ridiculous. Obviously not the case. He leads them here purposefully in His grace and mercy. God leads Israel to Elim to show the immensity of His love and the wonder of His undeserved grace. He is showing Israel that where He leads, He always provides. They can trust Him and even though they complain, God in His grace is always in the process of protecting. And so they rest. And we turn to consider our own understanding of this passage of Scripture. And as we have throughout and stopped at a few places, let's stop again for a few moments and consider. According to 1 Corinthians 10, 9 and following, and Hebrews 3, 1 and following, we know that Israel's ordeal in the wilderness is recorded here for our instruction. This isn't just a travelogue. Can you believe what happened to them? This is put here for us to see how God wants us to live in the midst of bitter trials and circumstances. We're to draw from their experience. And certainly we draw from this, the, can, you've seen it, the circle with the word whining in the middle and the slash mark right down through it, right? No whining. Usually ends up in somebody's house that has children, I notice. Why is that? Uh, We all whine, adults just as much as children. We whine because whining is immature. Children haven't developed the mechanisms to hide their grumbling and whining quite as well as adults, but we all do it. And this passage puts a slash right through complaining and whining. You remember the Science Project? Many of you have done it. Some of you are looking to this glorious day when you get to dissect a frog. Boy, was that fun. And smelly. You can still smell the formaldehyde. But wasn't that a great day to rip open that frog and see what was inside? And you just hoped it had eaten something. <laughs> well, let's slap on the table complaining. And let's cut it open and see what it's eaten. As we cut open whining and complaining, we find that inside is self centeredness. Complaining is selfishness. Honest truth is we want our way and we're not getting it. And so we grumble and complain and we're resentful. As we poke around inside of grumbling we find a second element and that's bad theology. I've indicated this earlier but let's consider it again. God is not doing a very good job contending for His glory. I could do a better job. I could elevate God higher. I could make things work better than God is doing. He is insufficient for this situation. That's what we find in the guts of grumbling. A third element here is pride that follows from the preceding point. I can do this better. I'd have a better way of knowing how to glorify God. And what I know in my mind is that if God would set everything up so that everybody sings all the time, He would be more exalted than He would be giving us these times when nobody's singing. We don't like such times. And I think I know better than God. Well, God says, we need our faith tested. There's going to be a time of unending song. But you're not there yet. More on that in a moment. The fourth element that we find in this dissection is contention. Grumbling, complaining, murmuring is always contentious. It never solves a problem biblically. It never graciously addresses the person or the people involved or the reason behind what's going on. It is always a contentious orientation that really never gets anything solved. This is the spirit of the age. Drawing from one Christian author who quotes Kurt Cobain who was a individual who spoke for the spirit of the age as a rock star and dying of drug overdose and living as about as godless a life as is possible to live. He said this in one of his songs. I like to complain and do nothing to make things better. That's the spirit of the age. I love to bellyache and just leave it at that. This is not the counsel of God. His counsel is that we would address matters in a biblical and honorable manner, that we would graciously not grump about other people and situations, but that we would go to God in prayer and seek proper solutions And address people face to face and seek proper solutions. And in some situations to stop and rest and leave it in God's hands. So as we throw this carcass away, let's know that inside was nothing pretty. It is selfishness, bad theology, pride, contentious spirit. That's all there is in grumbling. Let's pitch it out, and not bring it back. But there is in this text, I think, a bigger picture. It's not just a text against whining and complaining, and that's all we are to see in it. There's something much deeper here. We need to look further down the road and understand that there is a pilgrimage that is taking place. And in the people of Israel, in this nation, we find a picture of ourselves. In fact, there is a fuller expression of the agenda that's going on here in the walk of the Christian as we participate as the church together. Israel, think of it, they are delivered from Egypt. And where are they headed? They're headed for the promised land. They're headed for the glory of this gift that God has given to them, but there's this wilderness thing in between. I don't think we can miss the parallel with our own walk with Christ. We have been delivered from death. We have been delivered from the bondage of sin. And where are we headed in all of this? We're headed to glory. We're headed to the promised land, to presence with God, but there's this mess in between we call life. And it's got a lot of places where there's bitter water and there doesn't seem to be any provision. This is the realm of sanctification. This is the realm of testing, of trial, of development of our faith. Acts 14 and verse 22, Paul encourages those to whom he preaches to realize that the path that leads to the kingdom of God passes through many trials. You've got to look down at your map and realize where you are. This is going to be a tough journey, Paul says. John Newton put it so well in words that we sing very often. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. His confidence comes in the next line. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. I've gone through the Red Sea. I've been delivered from the bondage of sin. I will enter into glory someday. But right now, in this passage, many dangers, toils, and snares. But I'm going to get through this by the grace of God, because of His goodness to us. What does grumbling in the midst of this journey evidence? It evidences the same thing it evidenced in Israel's experience. It evidences that our focus is not properly centered on the goal. We aren't seeing ourselves as pilgrims. We're seeing ourselves as already arrived. And why isn't everything working the way I planned it and the way I'd like it? Our goal, Christian, is the eternal city. This isn't our place. This is just our journey. And when we take on the attitude of a pilgrim, Before our eyes is that city, and we pursue in hope, and we develop persevering faith that never loses sight of the goal. Grumbling is always blind. It has lost sight of two things, I think. It has lost sight of the past and the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ Grumbling fails to look back and remember our deliverance from sin and its bondage. It fails to glory in the cross of Jesus Christ. Grumbling is a failure to remember. And grumbling and whining is also a failure to look forward and to see the home of heaven and to see glory at the end of the road. And so in between, persevering faith struggles. Get our eyes back to the cross, and set our eyes forward to glory, and we persevere in between. I hasten to say in this, that's not to say that life stinks. That's not the right conclusion. It is to say that it is filled with trials. What doesn't stink is the presence of God with us through the trials. We grow in our intimacy with Him, and in our love toward Him as we go through those trials so that when we reach glory, it's all the more sweeter when the trials are gone and sin is history. And so what does He say to us? You know the passages, James 1. Rejoice when you enter into trials of many kinds. Romans chapter 5 In verse 3, let me read. We rejoice in our sufferings," says the Apostle Paul, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We can rejoice if we think as pilgrims and continue to grow in our faith. And let me say this then as we consider this passage. This is really all about Jesus Christ. As we read this text, as we look to it, we need to orient its teaching toward our relationship with Jesus the point is not simply don't grumble because it's irrational, immature, and embarrassing. The purpose of this text is to say, let's look at this issue in light of the face of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine Jesus grumping and belly aching and whining? If he had, there wouldn't be anybody who was worshiping him among his followers. It was completely below him. It's sin, and we know it. Our goal is to pursue Christ-likeness, to remove whining and complaining. Now, Jesus was not lost in the fog and thinking that everyone was good and every circumstance was good and just putting a positive spin on everything that spun the other way. Clearly, that's not the case. Read Matthew chapter 23. He can discern who's right and who's wrong and what situations need to be corrected. But he wasn't a whiner and a grumbler. And I think probably the place where we can see this perhaps most evident in Jesus is the cross. But without going there and focusing on that place, let's go back to the beginning of His ministry and consider Jesus in the temptation. Because it's there that He's in a situation that's very similar to Israel's. He has not eaten for 40 days. And He's out there in the desert, in the wilderness, under this situation of great trial and temptation. This is a place where it's easy to grumble against God. We find it's easy to grumble when we've missed a meal. He hasn't eaten for 40 days. And the hunger is unimaginable. And there, out in that desert, Satan comes and tempts Jesus to solve the problem Satan's way. And what does Jesus say? Man does not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Do you see it? God left Israel a statute. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Our life raft in the midst of bitter temptations is the word of God. When you're grumbling and complaining and whining, one thing that is a thousand miles from your mind is the truth of God. We get narrowed in on how we see the world, what we want it to be, and how we understand our circumstances. Jesus said in that moment of unbelievable temptation, I will not listen to anything but the word of God. And as we enter times of trial and temptation, there is there for us great hope. Flee to the Word. Run to the Word of God and hear His truth over again. And trust it. Listen to it. Take it in. Depend upon it. It will never lead you astray. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The Lord left for Israel this statute. If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in His eyes, and give ear to His commandments, and keep all His statutes, I will give you drink. I will be your healer. As Jesus' teachings continued from Matthew 4 and His temptation, we come to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 30. If I can draw just one thing from His teaching, He said, "...but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? There's Israel. What shall we drink? Moses." what shall we wear? Verse 32, For the Gentiles seek after all such things. Those who don't know Christ the Savior seek after these kinds of things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need all of them. You think you're letting God know anything by grumping and whining? No, He knows. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. What we need to strive to do when we become bitter in the circumstances of life is to return to the praise. To go back to Exodus 14.31 and 15.1 where Israel rejoices in God and His deliverance to focus on the gospel and to focus on the glory that is before as we allow the Word of God to instruct us and to teach us. One note as we close, which I must bring up, I think, in light of our adult class this morning. Here's the connection between the lament psalms. Grumblers talk in low, muted tones behind God's back. The lament psalms run to God and lift their voice as they look in His face. And they say, God, this is what's going on. These are bitter waters. Why have you brought us to this place? How are you going to solve this? But they always come back, as Pastor mentioned to us there, they always come back, don't they, to the nature and the character of God. That's the difference. You can pour out your complaint In the right sense of the word to God, you can bring your lamentations before him. In fact, he welcomes them, but you always must do so with a confidence in the character and nature of God. That he is the source and the solution. That he is the one who is your healer. The grumbling and complaining that Israel did was in the half-muted tones that turned its back on God. His glory was up above them. Their heads were down, talking in quiet tones among one another about this Moses. That's not a lamentation in the biblical sense of the term. That's grumping, and God hates it. Pour out your heart to the Lord as you focus on the gospel, as you focus on the glory that is to come. And may we as a church put complaining to death. Let's bow for prayer. God, it's almost laughable how immature we are. And I hope that everybody shares with me just a certain sense of Humility and embarrassment as we approach your throne. And know how many times we whine and grumble and complain. God, as we dissect this thing, it's so ugly. And we confess to you our murmurings and complainings and dissatisfaction with life. Lord, help us not to simply run away and pretend that everything's good when it's not. But we realize, Lord, that we are pilgrims on this journey. And I pray, Father, that you would teach us to walk that balance between discerning what is wrong and sinful and what needs to change, even in the lives of others and circumstances sometimes to discern the difference between that and the times when we turn our heads down away from your glory and mumble among ourselves at people and circumstances as if they ran the universe. When we see whining in children, it's never a happy sight. And when we consider that you, our Father, watch this in us, God, we just want to pause and thank you for your grace. That as a loving parent despises the whining of his children, but still provides for them, we know that you have done this for us over and over again. We have despised your gifts We have impugned your motives. We have questioned your fatherly hand. And then we pull up a chair at your table and you feed us graciously. We thank you. We praise you. And ask that you would transform us into the likeness of Jesus. Teach us to be discerning. Teach us to address problems biblically. But God, help us to seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness and to trust that all that we need, You will provide in Your time and way. God, for some, this is a particularly difficult challenge. For each one of us, Father, may we look long and look back And center our hope in the gospel. And in the future redemption that we will have in Christ as we have come to know him as Savior. Lord, I pray for anyone who is caught in grumbling because they are incapable of living any other way. For one who is caught in sin. And blinded to your glories, I pray that you would open their eyes to your saving grace, that they would see the death and resurrection of Christ as their hope today. And Lord, that our praise, as we gather as a church, would become ever more authentic. This is our prayer, in Jesus' name, amen.